This is the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. My name's Clay Wirestone. In today's episode, Governor Maggie Hassan says she's open to compromise on the budget. Ohio Governor John Kasich barnstorms in Nashua. And we dig into a bevy of political stories from across the Granite State. So welcome to our politics editor, Jonathan Van Fleet. Thank you, Clay. I'm happy to be back. Happy to have you here. And uh, political reporter, Casey McDermott. Great to be here. Great to have you here. So let's start off this week uh, by kind of putting aside all of the political uh, presidential candidates for a second and turning to Governor Maggie Hassan, who made an appearance today to talk about the state budget negotiations. She'd vetoed the budget passed by the House and Senate. So, Casey, you were there. Tell us a little bit about what the governor had to say. I was. So, uh, last night, the governor's office announced that she would be holding a press conference this morning. Um, We're about a month out from when the governor vetoed the legislature's budget. Um, And she had a number of concerns, but I think kind of chief among them were Um, the issue of lowering um, certain business taxes. And she was concerned that the way that it was written um, without other revenues to make up that uh, that loss, um, that it would result in a big hole in the budget. So today, a bunch of reporters uh, showed up. Um, Hassan was joined by several dozen Democratic legislators and presented what she um, is saying is kind of a compromise framework um, and offering to lower the business profits tax um, starting in 2016 to a certain level, um, also provides some other forms of tax relief, um, does not include Medicaid expansion as a component of the budget, um, but she includes some funding to further study um, certain data points and the, the effectiveness of that program, basically. But that was one of the other sticking points is that the Republicans didn't want to have the debate over Medicaid expansion as a part of the budget debate. So that was another concession that she's saying that she's offering to them. Um, and there are several other kind of, you know, uh, points that she she offers there. Um, and the way that she's, you know, framing this now is that I'm coming to the table. I'm offering these things that, you know, maybe are not exactly what I was hoping for at the beginning, but I'm willing to budge, you know, I hope that Republicans and others are willing to do the same. Now, a few hours later, House and Senate leadership, um, the Senate President Chuck Morse, House Speaker Sean Jasper held a press conference of their own. Um, They said basically that, you know, it is a step forward, definitely, that Governor Hassan made the concession that she did on the business profits tax, Um, And also that she was willing to kind of separate out the debate on Medicaid expansion. But they said that's that's basically where the the silver linings end for them. Um, And the way that Sean Jasper was describing it is that, you know, even if they were in a position where they wanted to kind of negotiate on some of these other items, he didn't think that he was in a position to round up the votes necessary within his own chamber of Republicans who would go for some of the other um, things that Governor Hassan has included to offset, you know, certain elements of her her compromise. And basically what we're talking about is that Governor Hassan in her framework suggested raising the cigarette tax and also raising the vehicle registration fee. And, um, you know, Republican legislators have made it very clear that they are opposing tax and fee hikes. So I think that was 
you know, Speaker Jasper was acknowledging that this is going to be a really tough sell. Now, you you know, it's kind of what you're saying about Hassan's uh, press conference today is that she was presenting this framework as kind of this is a compromise framework. Is there any indication that there was anyone that she was actively compromising with on this? Was she actually talking to other Republicans or is this more just her proposal of what she thinks Republicans might like? This is basically what I'm getting out of this is that, you know, Hassan and legislators have been meeting. Um, It's, you know, there's some quibbling on how much, you know, the Republicans were surprised by this proposal. A number of them have said that, you know, she's trying to kind of negotiate through press conference and that they got these proposals basically at the same time that the media got them, which they're a little bit, you know, ticked off about. Um, But, you know, they have been in discussion at some level about, you know, different issues. And I think both sides have made fairly clear kind of where their priorities are. Um, So, you know, there's some differences in terms of uh, the Republicans were saying that they didn't necessarily have the specific proposals that Governor Hassan presented today. But, you know, they've both sides have acknowledged that they've been talking, you know, weekly, regularly throughout Mm -hmm. this whole process. Well, and I think when the the original budget veto happened, uh, you know, a while back, there was there were some questions as to whether that would happen, mm-hmm. as to whether they would be actually be mm-hmm. negotiating during the mm-hmm. summer. So the fact that they are, yeah, I mean, I think it's you know it's tough for outsiders and for reporters to really tell how productive those conversations mm-hmm. are because you know you hear different things in terms of you know, whether it's both sides just talking at each other and not really budging, or whether they're actually coming to the table with well, you know. Here's where I'm willing to give a little. Where are you willing to give a little? Um, so it's, it, you know, again, from the outside, it's difficult to say. Um, but there are some, you know, conversations that have mm-hmm. been taking place. Now, one of the other things that uh, Governor Hassan did this, this week was that she vetoed a, a specific tax change that would have um, benefited Planet Fitness, the uh, workout organization that has, uh, has headquarters here in New Hampshire. So... Um, John, kind of what was what was going on there and what are the stakes? Uh, Planet Fitness, a large large corporation in New Hampshire. It's got a lot of different a uh, lot of different gyms, workout places that people know about, who many of us are members. Um, but they wanted to go public and they were seeking uh, essentially a, a change of the tax structure and they laid it down pretty pretty clearly that if this the New Hampshire tax code wasn't changed, they're headquartered in New Hampshire, they would leave the state. Now the gyms would stay, but the corporate headquarters would leave. So the the Republican legislature passed this thing and Hassan said, no, uh, I don't think this carving out this loophole makes sense. And she again cited the state budget. So, But she did leave open the door a little bit saying that this is possible to redress during the ongoing budget budget negotiations. So she may be holding this as kind of a chip in her hand to then bring forward some compromise with the Republicans like we were talking about. And and earlier, I, I found it interesting, Casey, that Sean Jasper, among the things he said today was that there's actual anger on the part of legislators, that people are angry and, and that's one of the reasons why, even if they're, they're willing to compromise a little bit, they're so mad right now uh, about uh, Hassan's budget veto mm-hmm. that they may not be willing to come to the table. And I think this, the plan of fitness, is, is among the things that they're angry about. Yeah, there's, um, 
at the at the press conference with Speaker Jasper and Senate President Chuck Morse, um, you know, both acknowledged that there's a real kind of frustration in the legislature um, over Governor Hassan vetoing a number of pieces of legislation that they had passed. Um, Senator Morse brought up the uh, 30-day residency requirement for voting, um, which, you know, he described as kind of common sense legislation that Governor Hassan was opposed to. And that, you know, we could spend a whole hour talking about the debate about that. Um, but, you know, basically what, what Speaker Jasper said was that, you know, there's there's a growing angst and, um, you know, that that's been brewing basically even before she threatened to veto it. Um, and he said that, you know, he doesn't even think that the governor really recognizes like how frustrated a lot of the legislators are. So, you know, maybe, maybe she does, maybe she doesn't, but that's kind of, you know, you can tell that it's kind of a tense environment in which to attempt to negotiate something. And it was also seen, I think, just in the, the way the Hassan's announcement was handled today. She had the press conference. Uh, it was pointed out that she was flanked by a number of Democrats. And so one of the first responses to her budget compromise wasn't on the contents of, of the compromise. It was on the manner in which she rolled it out via press conference flanked by members of her own party. And the House Majority Whip, uh, Richard Hin Hinch, from Merrimack was one of the ones who said, "Look, this is this is how is she how how is this compromise if you're basically negotiating through the press with members of your own party?" So I, I think that's another example of this palpable anger uh, that's that's uh, present at the state house. Right, and we also probably can't uh, you know we can't think about this without also realizing that you know kind of whatever steps and takes next is of great interest to both democrats and republicans you know whether or not she decides to run for senate against uh kelly ayotte or even whether she decides to run for another term as governor you know in, in each case kind of her future ambitions whatever they may might be are definitely part of the equation i i is, that's my impression, at least. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think so. And I think that, you know, she's certainly getting pounded by Republicans and, and related groups for basically every move that she makes right now. Um, and similarly, you know, the Dems are also accusing Senator Ayotte and her allies of meddling in the budget process. Um, another reporter asked Governor Hassan directly about that, you know, whether she shared that view at the press conference today. And she basically dismissed it. I don't think anyone was expecting her to engage in that head on. Um, but, you know, it's it's an awareness that there's this kind of, you know, overarching kind of political context that all of this is taking place in. So coming up next, strenuously avoiding any mention of anyone whose initials are DJT until a little bit later in the podcast, we're going to talk about Ohio Governor John Kasich, who was, I believe, the latest and possibly last Republican to declare his intentions to run for the nomination, um, the, the party's nomination for president. He has uh, been on a little bit of a New Hampshire jaunt this week. He was in Nashua on Tuesday. Um, in kind of a trend, Casey was also there uh, covering that event. So tell us a little bit about uh, the governor. 
Yeah, so the he, other governor. The <laughs> other governor. Um, so John Kasich of Ohio um, is, as, as Clay said, the latest person to jump in the race, and he came straight to New Hampshire um, following his announcement, which was at Ohio State University, his alma mater. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've been to a handful of his events so far. This was his second town hall that he had ever done in New Hampshire. Um, and I think you could tell a little bit that he was, you know, kind of buzzing after this, like, you know, first day announcement, you know, he, he was at times kind of jumping around from topic to topic, or if someone would ask him about something, he would kind of go on to a tangent and maybe bring in a different, you know, element of his background that might not necessarily relate directly to the question, but um, he's certainly not alone in doing that. But he uh, spoke for about an hour, fielded a bunch of questions, um, ranged from, you know, immigration, the environment, um, social security, things like that. And I think that, you know, he's really trying to kind of cast himself as someone who knows Washington. He gets Washington. He has one of the longest, you know, legislative political careers of anyone in the race this year. Um, he was in Congress, he was in the private sector, he has, you know, experience as governor under his belt. So he's really trying to kind of present himself as like, I understand how this works from several different angles. I am willing to think about, you know, policies that benefit people, not just, you know, political ideology. And that's something that you see in his support for Medicaid expansion in his home state, which, as we see in New Hampshire, is an incredibly politically divisive issue. Um, but here you have a Republican governor who has, you know, wholeheartedly said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it because I think it's the right thing to do. Um, angered a lot of people within his own party for doing that, but it, he sticks by it. Um, so one of the challenges that he has is just that, you know, he's getting in relatively late. There are a lot of other big names. He's competing for kind of a slice of the Republican Party, the way that it's been described to me, that, you know, right now is really occupied by your Jeb Bush, your Marco Rubio to some extent, your Scott Walker, Chris Christie, um, more moderate, maybe kind of broader appeal than a more conservative Ted Cruz, um, the other, the other candidate who shall not be named. Um, and, um, you know, one of, I spoke with some kind of observers this week and Dante Scala, a University of New Hampshire political science professor, put it to me. This way that, you know, it's kind of a thin line between John McCain and John Huntsman for for John Kasich. And there's, you know, John McCain, who could kind of, you know, not always agree with his party, but still get away with it and was, you know, loyal and liked. Um, but then there's John Huntsman, who kind of had this reputation where he was almost, you know, no labels to the point of not being able to really earn the support of his party at large. So the 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 Republican in name only question. Yes. Yeah. But. But, you know, Kasich also seems to be trying to, you know, fill in the 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 quote unquote mainstream party leader gap, you know, the, uh, you know, in that in that space, which really, you know, as you know, you you named a number of candidates, but really at, at a certain point is pretty much, you know, confined to like Jeb Bush mm -hmm. at, at this point in yeah. terms of like a a in terms of a Republican candidate who's more or less running for the general election. Mm -hmm. And not running in in the primary as much. Either. Yeah, and that's going to be tough for Kasich again, just from a kind of name recognition and attention standpoint. Um, you know, he's in this kind of you know really uh, for him not 
fun position of the first Republican debate is going to be held in his hometown and he's probably not going to be in it because of the polling numbers right now. Um, so he's he's, I believe, one of the ones who signed on to participate in the union le- union leader forum. So he's going to have that. Um, his PAC has been running ads for weeks here and likely will continue. So I think you're going to um, see him really trying to just focus on getting his name out there and building his name recognition. So in the category of political trivia, as I was reading John Kasich coverage uh, this week, I came across an article uh, that detailed his anger and opposition to the movie Fargo, that he uh, was going to be spending a night at home with his wife. He went to, this is a few years back, uh, Fargo's almost 10 years old now, and uh, Coen Brothers film, for mm-hmm. people who don't know. Uh, there is a wood chipper scene, uh, but he he went to the blockbuster video. He asked for a recommendation. They said, Fargo, it's great. Brought it home. He was absolutely horrified and wrote about it in his book and, and asked them to uh, to more clearly label their, their uh, movies so that people wouldn't uh, accidentally stumble into a wood chipper scene. And... You know, it doesn't have much to do with policy, but I, I found it very interesting. It was just it was an interesting little anecdote. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of stories written and a lot of kind of talk too about you know John Kasich having a little bit of a temper, being a little bit gruff. Um, you know, I think that to some extent that's kind of you know a product of his his roots, and I think he'll be the first to tell you that. I, I asked him about it earlier this year, and he had pointed out that you know. I come from McKees Rocks, which is a suburb of Pittsburgh. I can say from personal experience, I'm from an area not far away. And John Kasich, you know, I can name any number of relatives who remind me of him. So it doesn't really phase me that much. Um, but it's it's that is something that, you know, when you're trying to sell yourself to a large audience, then some people might not always, you know, that might not always translate well. So there have been, you know, I think people have continued to ask him about that and stories lately have, you know, had him saying, you know, I'm working on it. I'm trying to rein it in a little bit, be a little bit more, you know, level-headed. But, um, you know, I, I think that that's something else that you'll see him try to work on. In his book, he addresses he addresses that as well mm-hmm. in saying that it, it surely isn't fun to be on the receiving end mm-hmm. of one of his tirades, I think mm-hmm. is the word that he used. But he also said it's not fun for him either mm-hmm. to launch into one. Mm-hmm. So he, he recognizes it, acknowledges mm-hmm. it. Well, and I think you also, though, I mean, it's traditionally been, you know, true, I think, of Republican fields and kind of the primary mm-hmm. uh, primary system that... You know, you have a candidate like John McCain or you have a candidate like Chris Christie mm-hmm. who may have some more moderate policy positions, but just the way they present mm-hmm. themselves, particularly if they present themselves as being hard-edged or gruff, mm-hmm. can go a long way mm-hmm. towards kind of assuring mm-hmm. primary voters that, well, they're really out for us mm-hmm. because, you know, I can see that they're genuine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's there's a certain you know, point at which it could register as, you know, this is a guy who's really passionate. He, you know, is is going to maybe get really intense emotionally when he's speaking about certain things, but depending on the, the voters, that could definitely work in his favor. One of the bigger political stories of the past week, um, and he was one of the big, biggest political stories in weeks before that too, but uh, Donald Trump has really 
uh, gone above and beyond in recent days in providing kind of political coverage and anecdotes aplenty. So, John, uh, tell us a little bit about um, about the Donalds here. All right. Well, recently. last weekend he uh, made some comments about John McCain and uh, was essentially saying that being captured didn't make uh, John McCain a, a hero to to him. And, uh, you know, maybe Donald Trump likes more of the uh, Mark Wahlberg type of war hero. <laughs> um, but like this, people who weren't captured. Is he the words. And, and we all know, yes, people who weren't captured. And we all know how, uh, how revered John McCain is here in New Hampshire for his, um, his the way he's embraced the, the primary and greeted people and just really taken to New Hampshire politics. So, um, you know, Trump is getting uh, criticized for this. And so one of, yes, go oh, ahead. I was just going to say that part of the, there's a little bit of a backstory here and that Trump was um, irked by John McCain saying that Trump was, you know, something along the lines of firing up the crazies or something like that. So he was responding in the way that he's spinning this is that, you know, he's angry that Senator McCain would refer to fellow Americans in that way. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Trump had made an appearance down in Arizona. In Arizona, yes, yeah. uh, McCain State. So, and uh, McCain is is um, friends with Lindsey Graham, and uh, Lindsey Graham then comes onto the scene and says uh, something to the effect of, uh, "Pardon my French, but uh, Donald Trump should quit acting like a jackass." And um, Donald Trump. Not to not to uh, curl into a ball and, and hide, then has a press conference in which he holds up a piece of paper and reads a number which he he purports to be Lindsey Graham's personal cell phone number, and which in fact was Lindsey Graham's personal cell phone number. So again, Lindsey Graham, not to curl up in a ball and hide in the corner, then takes to the internet and does this really marvelous video of all the ways to uh, destroy a cell phone in which he beats it with a golf club, Blends drops it. Blend, the blender, it was, it was really good, drops, <laughs> drops a cement block yeah. on it, um, microwave, I don't know, did it, no, was it, was it a microwave or was I it think like there was a, microwave. A, a toaster oven? Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually before he did that, there's a little bit of a New Hampshire connection here because uh, listeners might recall that Lindsey Graham and John McCain are also very good friends with Senator Kelly Ayotte, and the Washington Post actually reported that, you know, hours after Donald Trump had given out Lindsey Graham's phone number, that Lindsey Graham was spotted going to see a viewing of The Minions with Kelly Ayotte and her two young children in DC and that at that point he had just taken to handing the phone to Kelly Ayotte's young children and having them answer. So, uh, you know, there's, there's our little granite state connection there. But I mean, I think the real, the real question that, that many people had after these couple of days was, you know, surely Donald Trump could space it out a little bit more. I mean, just the, the amount of kind of crazy stories, frankly, that he was generating in such a short amount of time were, were kind of overwhelming. 
And he also did say that he would uh, he would tone it down a bit if elected president. <laughs> um, and so I was wondering, what, does that mean that he wouldn't give out, say, Vladimir Putin's cell phone number? You know, it could, it could be an effective negotiation tactic. Well, it's, I mean, <laughs> now you have me thinking kind of, you know, this could really escalate quickly on the world stage if he's elected. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I think that, again, you know, one of the things that Donald Trump is really good at is leveraging the media. And, um, you know, as evidenced by this very podcast right now, we have spent a considerable amount of time talking about him because he keeps doing crazy stuff. So, you know, the logic holds that if he cre- keeps doing crazy stuff, the media will keep talking about him. More people will find out about him. Um, and, you know, he hasn't reached the breaking point yet. And I don't know that we're going to see him necessarily let up anytime soon. I think he also understands a fairly basic point about the media that a lot of politicians don't, which is that if you want the media to cover you, you have to be accessible to them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's remarkable about Donald Trump, for someone who, according to him, is worth $10 billion, is that he is very easy to get a hold of. In the sense that, you know, all public appearances he does, he has like press availabilities, he'll talk to reporters for a while. Um, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, at least probably 10 years ago now when I was working in Florida, he had some building that was going up in the St. Petersburg area. And one of our the reporters in the paper was just able to get him on the phone mm-hmm. to talk about it. And he was just talking about how amazing his building was and how great it would be. And, you know, he just understands that if you want coverage, part of what you do is you just you just talk to the press. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter that you like them. You just you just are, are available. I think that's a difficult thing for, for some uh, politicians to understand. Earlier this year, he appeared at the Naki Loeb School of Journalism First Amendment Awards. He was the keynote speaker there, and he had a press availability. And it was interesting to me in that he was calling upon press by their name. Like, he knew the New Hampshire press even at that time. He knew who the major political reporters were in the state. Mm-hmm. It was impressive. Um, and I see you have a, a Donald Trump press release there in, in front of you, John. So <laughs> I do. And that's the sound of it right there. Uh, he announced today, since uh, since he's been getting, you know, for questioning John McCain's valor and heroism, he has now uh, commissioned a New Hampshire coalition of veterans for Trump, which uh, he's got several co-chairs who are uh, Werner Horner Franklin, Dan Tamborello of Londonderry, and Joe Peter of Farmington. And also Jerry uh, Delomus of Rochester. Mm-hmm. Which is, again, it's just like, it's not like he's avoiding this issue, you know, after having raised it with McCain. He's now diving into it and saying, you know, veterans, veterans, ver- veterans. I see you have some poll, poll numbers up over there, Casey. I so. do, but they're about other politicians. Oh, well. Uh, although it is, it should be said that actually shortly after his, um, his statements about McCain, Trump registered his biggest lead in any polls in a, in a, I believe it was a Washington Post poll that put him at 24% support. Yeah, I mean, it, it, um, it, there's certainly a, a kind of lag time between when something happens and the time that it takes to filter down into, you know, people who aren't necessarily glued to their computers following every piece of minutia surrounding the presidential race. But um, so we might not see the, you know, the poll numbers really start to register. But I mean, for now, he's, he appears to be safe.
And then in a grab bag of some other state political news, um, former House Speaker uh, Bill O'Brien, who would have been current House Speaker except for some shenanigans earlier this year, uh, is apparently not going to be returning to the House uh, after this, after his current term. So, John, uh, what do we know about that? Well, this was reported by the union leader uh, today that he is he has announced that he is not running for re-election uh, to the House, New Hampshire House, nor is he going to be seeking federal office. He recently purchased a company with uh, Amherst Representative Steve Stepanek, and uh, he's focusing on running that company. He is uh, in the realm of politics, though, uh, according to their, their reporting, is going to stay on as the, the chair for, uh, his, uh, for Ted Cruz in New Hampshire. And, um, you know, there's, we, right now we, we have reporters in the newsroom that are getting reaction to this because Bill O'Brien has been such a, a volatile figure uh, in New Hampshire politics for, for a while, you know, and, and he doesn't really back down from a lot of that. He is proud of what he did with the state budget. He is proud of what he was able to do with the Republican majority. And, uh, you know, he said in the article that he doesn't relish the controversy and he views his time um, in the New Hampshire House as public service. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, it just just the whole saga of of his rise to power, you know, kind of from as a kind of a backbencher to then becoming House Speaker in 2010, and then the backlash against his time as House Speaker in 2012, and then his near return in 2014. I mean, it's been a a journey of you know, it's been a roller coaster, really. Mm-hmm. And um, part of me suspects that um, he might just be interested in kind of sitting out the next couple of years because, in general. You know, the general election years like 2016 are generally less favorable to more conservative candidates, whereas midterm election years tend to be very good for him, good for them. So he might not actually be losing a lot by sitting out a couple of a couple of years. Are you predicting that we haven't seen the end of Bill O'Brien? Uh, I, I will make that that outrageous prediction. Yes, I, I suspect we'll we'll see more of him. Uh, and he did say that he was going to. Uh, he may have been joking, but he was gonna he was gonna try and stay off Facebook a little bit because that's you know he's certainly taken to Facebook to let some of his feelings be known and, and like a duck to water. You know, <laughs> there's that, and uh, he said he may launch a blog. You know, so we may we may hear from him. He's obviously I think he's had a uh, a TV show as well, um, a local cable access show. I don't know if he has his own, but he definitely appears regularly on another local access show hosted by Nashua Representative Ken Gidge, who is right. a Democrat. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So in and in other uh, state political news, um, U.S. Representative Frank Ginta has um, started appearing again, um, kind of after some revelations about a settlement that he'd made with the Federal Elections Commission. Uh, paying a fine uh, over some money that he had received in his campaign several years ago. Uh, He started to do town halls again. And then, I guess most recently, this week in Plastow? Is that how you say it? Plastow. Plastow, sorry. Uh, um, It was at a VFW hall, and John, what was was going on there? Uh, A woman asked him about his problems with the campaign finance money and, and stood up and asked a question. And uh, before Frank Inda got to answer, the uh, 
the post commander said, we're not taking any political questions at this event. We might lose our funding. Not exactly how uh, how he phrased it, but basically blocked the question, and then Ginta did nothing to attempt to answer it. Yeah, I believe he was claiming it was the commander was claiming it was a nonpartisan event. Yeah. Um, so according to WMUR, which uh, was at the event, we were not. Um, commander David Meany, I think, is his name, um, had said that you know we have a federal charter here. I asked the congressman not to answer that question. I will lose my license, my liquor license, the whole nine yards. Um, And I guess the woman had, you know, responded back, you know, why did we hold the event here? He's a political figure. Um, And Meany, the the commander, had said that, you know, as long as he stays bipartisan, he can't get partisan. Um, But, you know, this this strikes me just as someone who is kind of familiar with locations for political events in New Hampshire as somewhat odd at at first glance, just given that, you know, presidential candidates do hold town halls regularly at American Legion posts. I've attended several so far this year. Um, And, you know, other questions at the event had addressed political issues like the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, other things that were within the political realm, according to WMUR's reporting. So, I'm not sure exactly what the rules surrounding the American Legion and political events are, um, but I do think there were a lot of raised eyebrows, myself included, at this justification for, you know, why this woman was not allowed to ask that question. You know, I agree. And it should be noted that this is on the heels of an earlier town hall. In Alton, to- which we covered. It was his first town hall, I believe, since, uh, since the FEC uh, agreement had been reached. And uh, no one there attempted to ask the question, and he certainly didn't bring it up. Our reporter, Susan Doucette, talked to people afterwards, and they said, yeah, it's, a, it's an issue on their minds. They think that he has some explaining to do. And now there's a recent poll that's out that lets, uh, gives us some insight into how people feel about Frank Ginta. Yeah, so um, the Granite State Pool, which is, uh, I believe, a joint production between WMUR and the University of New Hampshire, um, released uh, a new poll this week that found that Frank Ginta's ratings, I think, you know, probably unsurprisingly, um, are are taking a hit because of the, uh, you know, in in the wake of the revelations about his campaign finance issues. Um, He was at about 40% unfavorable, 30% favorable in May. Um, Now in July, he's up to 49% unfavorable, 25% favorable, um, according to the most recent poll. Um, So that's, you know, certainly not good numbers for him. Um, And then in terms of the, the poll also asked respondents whether they thought he should resign. And overall, Uh, 44% of those who responded said that he should. Um, And there were some variations by party. Um, Democrats and independents were much more likely to say that he should resign than Republicans were. At the same time, 21% of Republicans surveyed still said that they thought he should resign. Um, And then there was a substantial amount of people of all parties who said, you know, they, they really didn't know. So... Um, I don't think that this issue is going away for him. Um, And I think that, you know, he's certainly not showing any signs that he's relenting right now. I think Mm -hmm. that the next big hurdles, you know, and barring any new developments on the campaign finance end will definitely be re-election for him and probably a primary challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, at least it gives us um, some interesting stories kind of in the run-up to that. Um, okay, John and Casey, anything else 
that we've missed? Well, I'm sure we've missed all sorts of things from the past week, but anything else we want to bring up today? Or? Well, we there's, uh, there's more candidates coming around this weekend. You'll have uh, Scott Walker, Rand, uh, the reemergence of Rand Paul. Um, Martin O'Malley will be in Concord, and we will have reporters at, uh, covering those candidates. And also, as promised last week, our fact check about uh, Kelly Ayotte and uh, how much uh, maple syrup per U.S. resident uh, the deficit could buy. That uh, fact check was was completed, and um, she got a, what was it, mostly? No, it was half true. Half true. It was a mostly half true. Mostly half true. <laughs> it was a half true. So the $483 billion deficit would not, in fact, buy 40 gallons of syrup for every person in the United States, unless, of course, you use U.S. wholesale prices. But as you rightly pointed out, Clay, that she cited New Hampshire maple syrup. And so Which is prices, considerably more expensive. Those prices are higher, and so it would not provide, using those numbers, would not provide 40 gallons per person. And it is it is of interest to note, and I am not making this up, that after finishing the taping of this podcast today, I'm actually going to go out and buy ingredients for pancakes to make for my son, with my son. So, and what will we top them with? You know, we'll have to see. Maybe maple syrup. New Hampshire made maple syrup. Please tell me. <laughs> okay. It'll so, be a celebration. Back on the price. Yes. So anyway, John, thanks for uh, thanks for being here today. Thank you. And thank you, Casey. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's installment of the podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to receive our episodes on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can also visit politics.conqueredmonitor.com to read more of our political coverage. We'll see you next week.